0: Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Meet me in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, we're going to do something we don't normally do around here. We're only going to teach on two verses of Scripture today. I'm going to dive deep in. We're going to zoom in on those two verses, and I want to show you something beautiful happening in these two verses. We're going to look at the very last verse of Daniel chapter 4 and the very first verse of Daniel chapter 5. There's a form of Japanese art called kintsugi, uh, and and what, it, what they do in Kintsugi is they take pottery, they, 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 they build this beautiful piece of pottery, the most gorgeous thing you've ever seen, and then they slam it on the ground. Then they pick it up piece by piece, and they fill in the cracks with gold to make it even more beautiful. Y'all, you know, that is a beautiful illustration of what this life kind of feels like at times, isn't it? Sometimes the world just slams you on the ground and shatters you to pieces, and yet, and yet the gospel is that God's not done with you. He's not disgusted by the, the, the things going on, the brokenness of your life. He picks you back up, and if you allow him, he'll fill in the cracks of your life and to make you even more beautiful than you were before. Maybe you come in here heavy, fractured. Like, I'm, I don't know about you, but 2023, I, I didn't think anything could top 2022, but it just seems like all my friends are going through some heavy stuff. Whether it's not their kids or are sick or their parents are dying or or one thing after another just seems to be crushing people around me. Maybe you feel that way. If that's you, I'm glad you're here because I believe that God has a word for you today that will encourage you if you'll let him. Maybe you feel like you're in the process of being put back together. One of the things that feels that I know is when you're being put back together and you're not whole or complete yet, that kind of feels heavy, doesn't it? Some of you feel like, you're that type of pottery that I made in eighth grade. I don't know if you made that kind of pottery that I made. It was the kind of pottery that only your mama could think was pretty. Y'all, sometimes I go back in some of those boxes, and I'm like, what is that? Like, I think she lied to me. Because I'm like, I wouldn't even think that was pretty. Maybe that's how you feel. You know, God doesn't feel that way about you. Some of you look in the mirror, and you think you're that piece of pottery. That's not how God thinks about you. You know how I know that. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, listen to what he says. For we are his worksmanship. That word worksmanship, I've told you before, is the Greek word poema, where you get poetry from. (laughs) You are God's poetry, he says. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Y'all, the deal is, according to God, you are a fine piece of poetry that he formed in your mother's womb, the way that you are, perfectly, just so you could be that way. You are that person that God has for you to be. Today, I want to look at this, this one contrasting piece of scripture, and I want to show you, I want to show it to you from two different angles. First, I want to show you how pride will continue to kill the kingdom. It's going to kill the kingdom of Babylon, but listen, I just tell you this, pride will kill your kingdom too. But then, even more importantly, I want to show you how Daniel walks resiliently with faith through all of it. And after that, I'm going to give you a couple practical takeaways that I just think God wants to refresh your soul with. All right, you remember last week? last week I showed you the King Nebuchadnezzar. If you you know anything about the Babylonian king, he was the worst of the worst. He was like Hitler times 10. He was a terrible human being. Well, God takes King Nebuchadnezzar and he gives him the final knockout blow, like Buster Douglas coming to Mike Tyson and knocking him to his knees. That's what God does to Nebuchadnezzar. And the very final words that you're ever going to hear from the king, here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 37. He says, now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, Praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Y'all don't move past that too quickly. That is a miraculous statement coming from a man who had absolutely no regard for God. God humbles him. For all of his work is right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, this is coming from a guide who walked in pride, he is able to humble. God truly humbled him. These are some of the last words you'll ever hear from King Nebuchadnezzar and they are words of worship. Can I just say this? This is so important as you look at King Nebuchadnezzar's life. Listen to me. It's not how you start in the Christian life that matters. It's how you finish. He was the guy that everybody would have said he's a mess up. He can't do it. Look at him. He's too evil and yet God takes a man like that, crushes his pride, humbles him and the very last thing he does is worship. You know, I've known a lot of people in my life who started out really, really strong. Like, I emulated them. I remember 13 years ago, I was in Gaithersburg, Maryland, sitting down at Covenant Life Church with one of my spiritual heroes at the time, a guy named Joshua Harris, and we're hanging out together, and all I could think is, I just want to be like you whenever I grow up. He wrote a book that's crushed a lot of people, but at that time it was really popular, called Kiss, Dating, Goodbye, and, and he's pastoring this massive mega church, and he's doing everything that I thought I wanted to do and 13 years later, he's walked away from Jesus, he's walked away from his wife, and he doesn't, he doesn't follow Jesus at all anymore. Contrast that with last week, I'm in San Diego, California, and I had the opportunity to go pour into some church planters there, me and my wife, and we're sitting down with this guy who's planting a church in San Diego, and he goes, hey, guys, before we go any further, I need you to know something, I'm a nine-time felon. In my last year in prison, God radically wrecked my life and saved me. I went from there and I started entering at a church. It's a decade later, he's got a doctorate in ministry and he's like, I wanna plant a church for those people that nobody else wants. Y'all, let me just ask you, who do you think God is pleased with? The guy who wrote the best-selling book that all of you have heard of, and yet he's not walking with Jesus anymore, the nine-time felon that nobody gave a chance, and he is faithfully walking and serving with Jesus. Let me just tell you, it's not how you start that matters, it's how you finish. Do you know why? Because God is not a God of the past, he's a God of the present. So for some of you, some of you got to stop making excuses. God doesn't care about what you did. He doesn't care about who you were. He cares about who you are saving faith is enduring faith. It's a faith that lasts and it doesn't really matter what you did because God doesn't care about that. It's about what he's done. That's King Nebuchadnezzar's story. He started off as the most evil, and rebellious king and God had to break him down so that he could build him back up. God had to fill in the gaps, if you will. He had to throw down the life of Nebuchadnezzar, let it fall apart so that he could pick it up and make it even more beautiful. Again, some of you need to recognize that your past does shape you, but it doesn't have to define you. you. Hear what I'm saying? Like, it does. Like, the person you were, that shapes you. Your relationships you had, it shapes you, but it doesn't define you. The, the college experience you had, or, or the type of person you were, or your family you grew up with, that shapes you, but it doesn't have to define you. The experiences you've had at work, maybe you, maybe you have a lot of regret in your life. Here's what I want you to hear me say. If God can forgive you, You can forgive yourself. He knows all those things about you. You realize that Jesus paid it all, right? Not 80% of it. All of your sin debt is paid, which means that your debt is clear, the slate is clean. here's, Here's what it means. Listen, when God says you are forgiven as far as the east is from the west, you know what that means? It means he's forgiven you so much that he chooses not to even see it anymore. Some of you are carrying a lot of stuff and you just need to let it. Matthew 11, love this. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and watch this, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I used to think, eggs? Like, what does that have to do with it? No, a yoke is like what you put around a bull to make them walk. Why? He says, put that on me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Y'all, humility is this. It's your ability to go to Jesus. But here's, here's what that means. If, if you come to him, what that means is you got to leave something behind, don't you? Right? If you'll come to him, if you'll be, if you'll be humble enough to leave behind your past and go to Jesus, he'll give you rest. doesn't say he'll change your circumstances, but here's what I've learned. is people who have rest in Jesus can walk through their circumstances. Y'all, you know, is exhausting, isn't it? Isn't it exhausting trying to control every aspect of your life? trying to manage your life in such a way that like, you control your kids' environment, whether it's be in school or sports or, or what are the people they hang out with, the things that come on TV and you're constantly trying to control everything. Like, like you, you try to make your boss happy and your spouse happy. You try to be fulfilled in yourself. If you try to juggle everything on your own in this type A crazy world, you are just going to be exhausted and burned out. And yet Jesus says, come to me. But he doesn't just say, come to me. Watch this. He says, come and learn from me apprentice under me. Do you know what it means to learn from Jesus? Do you know who Jesus was? Some of us think that Jesus wasn't busy. He was busy. Yeah, all the world's problems were on his shoulder. But you know what Jesus did? He constantly retreated from the world. He rested, he prayed, and he meditated in solitude. He was interruptible. He had such margin in his life that he could respond to the needs that were in front of him. He was never hurried, but he always had somewhere to be. You know people like that? He lived in community. He abided in God. And I don't know about you, but that just seems strangely, weirdly appealing to me, and yet almost impossible. Then he describes himself. It's the only place in Scripture, If I don't know if you knew this, that Jesus describes who he is. He says, I am gentle, lowly is the word humble in Greek. I am gentle and humble in heart. That's who he is. Listen, God wants you to come to Jesus because he wants you to be like Jesus and when you'll be like Jesus, you will get the abundant life. Ultimately, the most loving thing that God could have ever done to King Nebuchadnezzar was to humble him, was to pursue him, was to knock him out so that he could see him. Ah, I love it. Dr. Tony Evans, So this is what he says. You can't be filled with the Holy Spirit if you're full of yourself. Now, some of us are still a little full of ourselves. That's why we begin our worship gatherings by saying, God, take from my hands these things. And I'm not always talking about full of pride. I'm talking about full of anxiety, I'm talking about full of worry, I'm talking about full. Of, you know what the opposite of faith is? It's not doubt, it's fear. But Jesus says, God is love, and perfect love drives out fear. Come to me, come to me. It's all over Scripture. Paul. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he gives you his resume, and if you didn't know this, his resume is pretty impressive. He says, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. I went to the Harvard of the first century. I was appointed to the Council of the Sanhedrin, which was like the elite pharisaical group that only a few select people got into. Paul came, he's like, I came from the right family, had the right education, and I got the right job. He had everything that this world had to offer, and yet God loved him so much that he tells you at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that God put a thorn in his flesh to torment him to the point in which he had nothing left. Why? Why? Why would he do that? Here it is in 2 Corinthians, our 1 Corinthians chapter 12. But Jesus said to me, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Y'all, God can only fill empty cups. And sometimes the most loving thing God does is he pours you out so that he can fill you up. Don't you want, don't you want to be filled with that, that spirit of God? If any of you on social media have been seeing it all over the country, like these things are revival, and then I see Christians, like they, they want to fight about, like, is that a revival or not? Y'all, I'm Joby Martin, one, a guy I, I, I know a little bit, he says this. He's like, I'd rather be gullible than cynical when it comes to the movements of God. Don't you want that here Here's what he's saying. God says sometimes it's only possible whenever I can empty you of your self-independence and self-reliance so you can start leaning on me. And I love the very last phrase. The very last phrase that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to say in the entire Bible is this. He is able to humble. He is able. If you are willing, God is able. Think about it. this was the king. This was the king who was the most prideful person. He had everything. Babylon the great. And God was able to humble him and restore his souls. He was able to fill the cracks with his spirit and to make him a worshiper of the king. He's able to do that to you too. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand. That's a pretty odd transition, isn't it? You might be thinking, I wonder what he's going to do with that. How does that apply to me? How, what is, what is this? We just go from this high to who is this guy? What's going on? Great question. Let me fill in the gaps for you. That little white space in your Bible between chapter four and chapter five, you might want to make a marking of it. Right here, that little, that little gap right there is a 20-year period of time. 20-year period of time in this, where, where there are four, or where there are five kings over 20 years that succeed King Nebuchadnezzar. King Belshazzar, he's, he's the fourth in the succession of his father. And it starts out after king, Belshazzar di- or after king Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, his son Murdoch took over the throne, was the king for one year until ultimately another guy. Y'all, I, I practice all week long how to pronounce these Babylonian names and I stink at it. So you can go look them up yourself. Another guy named In, that's what we're going to call him, he lasted four years until Lebesh Murdoch took over and killed him. And he was only king for a month until a guy named Nebu comes over and he kills that guy in 555 BC. And then Belshazzar is 16 years of being the king when this is written. Why does all of that matter? Two reasons. Two reasons. Here's here's the first reason. Because pride kills the kingdom. Pride kills the kingdom. Historians will tell you that on this very night, whenever King Belshazzar is partying like his 1999 with these thousands of people, this very night is the night of their destruction. The Persians are probably off in the distance. They're watching as the Babylonians are partying. You're going to notice in the very next chapter, the king is named Darius. He's, he's the Persian king that comes in and he attacks. There were these two major walls in the Babylonian empire that they said was impenetrable and would never be attacked. Well, it looks like they're watching off in the distance, and as they're doing this, the Euphrates River runs straight through the center city of this Babylonian town. What they did is they brought an army upstream. They dammed up the river as they're drunk and partying so that they could walk into the middle of the city on dry ground and take out the kingdom. King Belshazzar is so prideful that he doesn't even see his own destruction coming. How do you know that? If you look at the details a little bit later on in chapter 5, they get their mugs that they're drinking out of from the temple of God. It's almost as if they're grabbing their natty lights, they're pouring it in, and they're sitting there saying, to God and to his dad, King Nebuchadnezzar, he, I have no regard for you. I'm going to go right back to the things I was always doing. Y'all listen to me. There's a good lesson here. God won't be mocked. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go, but God's kingdom lasts forever. And the ultimate hope of this world is not in this kingdom, but it is in God, because God's kingdom will last forever, and if you will live for his kingdom, he won't be mocked, and he will build it. Leslie Newbigin, the great historian and theologian, said it this way, the church is an entity which has outlasted many states, nations, and empires, and it will, last, it will outlast those that exist today, too. Here's the second reason. I want to I hone in on this reason, why all this matters. 20 years is a long time. It's a long time. Imagine being Daniel. Daniel has watched God do some pretty amazing things. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel, he, he fights against the king. He gets a new diet as a, as a Babylonian slave that doesn't get anything. He re, re, retains his name. Daniel chapter 2, he sees God answer the prayers of his people. He interprets a dream. And then you see in Daniel chapter 3, that like, he watches his friends go through the fiery furnace and God walks there. He sees Daniel do some pretty, or he sees God do some pretty amazing things. He saves the most unlikely person in the entire world at the end of Daniel chapter 4, and then God goes silent for 20 years. Now, let me just ask you, if God went silent in your life for the next 20 years, would you be able to still faithfully worship him based on what you knew to be true about his character? Imagine this. Imagine if it's not until 2043 till you hear God speak again. Could you be faithful? For Daniel, the answer was yes. He watched kings come and go. He watched the kingdom crumble. You're going to see in the very next chapter that the Persian king enslaves him again, and he faithfully still stays with God. See, for Daniel, it didn't matter what was happening in his circumstances because he trusted and he knew his God. That little white space in your Bible represented the 20 years in the desert that Daniel had to go through because God wanted to teach him the same lesson that I think he wants to teach you. You ready for it? God's silence doesn't equal his absence. See, God is forming you in the waiting room of his grace. It's all over the scriptures. 40 years, 40 years Moses traveled through the desert until God, waiting on God, until God spoke. David, the great King David, it was seven years. After he was anointed king by, by, uh, by, by Jesse the prophet, it was seven years. Sorry, Jesse was his Seven years. And then afterwards, he goes and fights a Goliath. And after that, what does he do? He runs for his life for another several years from King Saul until he finally gets to the throne. Paul, Paul, it's three years Three years after the Damascus Road experience that he spends with Jesus, then it's another decade before he actually hangs out with the disciples. Then you have Jesus, who spent 30 years in obscurity, the king of the universe, before he took his three years of public ministry. I'm telling you, good things take time to ruminate. Have you ever eaten an unseasoned piece of chicken? It tastes terrible, doesn't it? No, you've got to let those spices go down deep, don't you? You've got to let them sit there for a while. See, because God cares more about your heart than he does your impact, sometimes he lets you sit in those spices for a little bit. God cares more about doing something in you than he does through you. And it's in those white spaces that God's spirit goes deep enough into your soul so that the gospel flavor of his life can come out of you. 20 years, 20 years, and in that little gap of those 20 years, David learned to trust God through the silence. He learned how to dig deep into that well of grace so that whenever he needed it, he could dig back into it. And it was all all that was necessary. You know why? Because the greatest test of Daniel's life is about to happen in Daniel chapter 6. It's the most famous story in the book of Daniel, Daniel and the lion's den. Do you know how that all transpired? The the satraps are working with King Darius and they're they're trying to get Darius' pride to well up and they look at Daniel and they say, I know one thing that will get Daniel thrown into the fire. He won't worship the king. So he said, you remember this, or you're going to see this in a couple weeks, Daniel has a prayer routine where he goes up into his room three times a day and he prays to God. They knew that and they recognized that because why? Because that's what he always did. Y'all, where do you think that prayer routine got formed? In the 20 years of waiting on God and begging for his mercy, don't you think that that's what developed in him was this, this deep dependency and reliance on the spirit of God in his life? Here's what I know. When life is easy and everything you've ever wanted and all your desires get fulfilled, you tend not to pray to God like this. You tend to move through life swiftly, but you do it without him. It's in the the waiting room of his grace. It's in the valleys of despair that I think that God tends to strip you of your self-reliance and he builds something even better in you. See, this is why I love sports so much. Uh, I'm a sports guy Uh, My kids hate it. I call Saturday's family football fun day. We turn them on all the time. My kids are playing sports. We're running all over the world trying to figure out how to get them from game to game. And why I love sports so much is because it teaches you failure. teaches you how to fail, how to do it on a team. Baseball's the worst at this. You know that, right? Like if you bat 300 in baseball, you're really good. Do you know what that means? It means you suck, but you don't suck that bad. There's something about that. Golf. Golf's the great equalizer. I hate golf. I retired from golf. People are like, You wanna go golf? No, I don't. No, I'm tired of getting out there thinking in my head I can shoot a 67, but I shoot a 124 and I have to lie to you six times just to get that score. <laughs> Some of us need to learn how to fail. We need to learn how to fail and not get into despair, but to lean back into God. Every time I run a marathon, I come home, my kids are like, Did you win? I don't have the heart to tell them I got like 16,000 in 24th place. I'm like, yeah, baby, here's my medal. They don't know that everybody gets a medal. <laughs> See, I'm convinced that it's only possible to do this when God graciously sends you into the desert of your loneliness. What we need to start doing is reinterpreting that, that God is not mad at us, his silence doesn't equal our, his, his absence, but he's working in the background doing the work necessary in our lives to build his kingdom through us. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust him? Or is God only good in your life whenever he answers all your prayers? Because if he is, you might not want God, you might just want the stuff that he gives to you. Think about it. If my kids only like me whenever I buy them stuff on Amazon, do they actually like me? Or do they just want the stuff that I provide for them? Here's something I read this week that I've just been ruminating on that I love so much. It comes from Daniel Henderson on this book of prayer that we're reading as a staff. He says this, the early church knew that ministry was received, not achieved. Their understanding was not that they had had to reach the world for Christ, but that Christ was ready to reach the world through them. The first depends largely on human effort, talent, strategy, and programming. The other is experience through the power of the living Christ and dwelling spirit, working supernaturally, in accordance with the scriptures. Here's what I'm becoming more and more convinced of. God's not dependent on us to do anything at all. He wants to do something in you. He wants you to receive something, not to achieve something. He wants to use you, and he wants to fill you up. I'm telling you, God wants to do a great work in your life. But sometimes, that takes some time for him to achieve that. So let me give you a couple real practical applications from these two passages that I believe can give all of us joy if we'll lean into them. Here's number one. God is able to change your life. God is able to change your life. Listen, some of you need, some of you need to know that God is able. Like God's ear is not turned so far that he can't hear you and his arm's not so short that he can't save you. God is able to do all these things. And maybe, maybe, just maybe for some of you, the very first step in humility is to recognize that God is God and you are not. And that is a good thing. Like King Nebuchadnezzar, if you are willing to humble yourself, God is able to change your life. How many of you have ever heard of the guy Matt Emmons? Anybody? Anybody? Matt Emmons was the MJ of rifle shooting. Now, if you're thinking in your head, isn't LeBron? No, he's not. There's no debate there. It's MJ. He was the MJ of rifle shooting, the Michael Jordan. This dude was so good that in the 2000 Olympics, all he had to do was hit the target on the very last shot in order to win the Olympic gold. Like it wasn't even a competition. So Matt pulls out his rifle, he gets down on his knee, he shoots the shot, he walks away pretty pridefully, knowing that it's over, he just hit the target, and as he's walking away, the red light comes on, and it's a miss. Not only does he not win the gold, he doesn't even get on the podium. He's super confused, he doesn't know what's going on, he doesn't know how this happens, the judges don't even know how this happened, they zoom in on it, they recognize that there's nothing on there, he misses the target, and he doesn't get it until they pan over to the target right next to his, and he hit a perfect bullseye on the wrong target. Now, don't feel so bad for him. Matt came back in 2004. He won the gold medal. Like, he's a, he's a gold medalist, but here's, here's what I think is going to happen in a lot of our lives. We're going to hit the target, but it's going to be the wrong target. Like, we're going to do the work necessary. We're going to work hard, and we're going to get to the end, and for a lot of us, the target that we're going to hit is going to be our own self-reliance. It's going to be good things at the expense of God things. You know, for some of you, it's going to look like this. You're going to, you're going to aim at the target of self-help. You're going to go through therapy. You're going, to, you're going to work on yourself and your image. You're going to start working out. You're going to do all these good things. For others of you, you're going to go to counseling to fix your marriage, or you're going to, you're going to strengthen your finances by the, doing the Dave Ramsey course. You know what I mean? You're going to, you're going to hit, the, hit the target of investing in your kids through extracurricular activities and through tutorings, and, and you're going to do all these things so that they can have the right decisions. And you know what I know about every single one of those things? They're all good things. They're all good things. But if you're not careful, what you will do in the end of your life is you will not say God is able, you will say I was able. See, I want you to do all those things. You should do all those things. But you should do all those things after you've leaned in on God. Because God is able. He's able to fix your marriages. He's able to fix your, your, your lives. And I've experienced it, I've seen it. I've seen God fix marriages. I promise you, if you will pursue Jesus instead of your spouse and you'll do it together, what you'll do is you'll end up meeting one another at the top. Just last week, I was hanging out with a friend of mine who's a pastor in Chicago. He's actually going to come here in a couple weeks. he wrote a book on marriage. What, what happened in his life absolutely wrecked him. Before he became a Christ follower, he, he was hanging out at his house doing some stuff he shouldn't be doing, and his wife came home a day early from her trip. Guess what she found? You know what? they were crushed. They ended up going to church the next day in Chicago, and they came to faith in Jesus, and God absolutely wrecked his heart and wrecked her bitterness. And you know what he told me? He said, Billy, you never know who's going to walk through the front doors of that church on a Sunday morning. I wanted nothing to do with Jesus. I was an awful person, and the gospel wrecked me. God is able. I've seen him do it. He can do it in your life. God is able to fix your soul. He's able to heal those broken parts of your soul. For some of you, what you need to do is you need to finally admit that. Like, You know what the greatest barrier of church in the South is? That you grew up in church. And you're embarrassed by the fact that everybody around you should think that you get this whole thing figured out and and, and it keeps you from God. You know, the best advice somebody gave me this year was this. The next time you're worried about what people think about you, realize they don't. You hear what I'm saying? They don't think about you. Listen to, Listen to me. 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 If you're embarrassed by the fact that you need God to move in your heart, but you're thinking, I grew up in this whole thing, none of us care. We love you. What we want is we want God to work on your soul. Jesus wants that. And if the thing that's holding you back from this thing is your own shame, drop it because we don't care and God doesn't care. Friends, God is able. Maybe you're a Christ follower in the And the well is running dry. God's silence is feeling dry. You know what sometimes he wants you to do? Dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper. Keep digging, keep digging. And what you'll find is he will give you rest for your soul. Here's number two. Oftentimes, God uses time to mold you. See, all good things in life tend to take time, don't they? There's no substitute for time. It's in the wilderness that God does his best work. Even Jesus, Matthew chapter four, before he begins his public ministry, God sends him to the desert for 40 days of solitude. I think it's the wilderness season in life that God becomes more sweet. You remember Psalm 23? It's the most famous psalm in the entire Bible. Might be the most famous thing in the entire Bible where he says, what does he say? What does he say? Think about it. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it's a little bit of a wilderness, isn't it? You know what what the psalmist says? As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God can make me lie down. God will lead me, and God will restore my soul. Oh, it's in the wilderness that God does his best work in you. Our elders used to tell me this all the time because the last couple years, it kind of felt like somebody takes a baseball bat to your knees. And you know what they told me? Billy, don't ever trust a man that doesn't walk with a limp. Because it's those limps in your life that tend to make you inform you and bring you closer to Jesus that tend to make you more empathetical. You can enter in. It's those limps that God tends to bring you back down so that he can show you that he is kind and good. Don't forget that. It usually takes time for God to mold you. And molding doesn't always feel good, but it works. Number three. Oh, I think we need this one so much here. Success is more about character than results. What if we rethought the way we think about success? What if we stopped thinking about the outputs and we thought more about the inputs? Listen, God cares more about who you are than what you achieve, and do you know why that's good news? Hear me, hear me. Most of you will not achieve the things that you want to achieve in life. Oh, do you know how freeing it is to know that God doesn't care about that? Because it's not about your outputs, it's about your inputs. He wants to do a good work in you. Success is different than that. Can I give you a little illustration of what success actually is? It's watching a 90-year-old couple walking down the street, smiling at one another, holding hands, because they've been faithful to each other and they've been faithful to God. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, to take him at his word. And then their kids and their grandkids love Jesus because of the model that they had. You know what success looks like? It looks like the couples in this church who have foregone the American dream so that they could foster kids and then adopt them. Success looks like people that show up here at Sunday morning at 7, 7.30, and 8 o'clock so they could set this place up, serve coffee, love your kids, so that as you walk into this room on Sundays, you get to experience Jesus. Success looks like people who are faithful, and, and you might not ever, ever, ever hear about their names. God cares more about the inputs than he does the outputs. Think about that. Y'all, God is building his kingdom, and he wants to use you to do it. And if you'll let the character of God wash over you, he will build your, his kingdom through you, and that, my friends, is the most successful thing that could ever happen. Like, did you know that what you fill your minds with is ultimately who you will become? And do you know what God wants you to fill your minds with? Think about it. He wants you to fill your minds with hope and joy. He wants to put those things in you. He put his spirit, the spirit of the living God inside of you. Y'all, sometimes I think that we all believe that God just saved us so we can go to heaven one day. That's not true. He saved us so he can make his home inside of you so that you can have joy now. He put his word, made this thing. I've told you this before. I say it all the time. There's only two things in all of human history that God breathed his life into. He breathed his life into you, and he breathed his life into this word. And he gave it to you. And Jeremiah says, oh, that we would devour, that we would eat this word, that we'd be filled up with it, and that it would come out of us. The more time you spend in this thing, this living, breathing, active word that God spoke to you, the more you will be changed from the inside out. What matters is who you are and not what you do. And God is committed to forming that inside of you. If you get anything from Daniel's life, it's not that he was successful because he Climb the ranks of society and say he was successful because he was faithful to his God. Here's number four. Ultimately, God will fill the gap. Some of you are sitting in the desert of waiting, aren't you? You know, the solution, the solution to all of this is this. You and I need a far greater kingdom than the kingdoms of this world. See, the Babylonian kingdom might have been mighty, but oh, how Babylon failed! Our kingdom that we live in might be mighty, but it will not last. We need a king that can actually be big enough and powerful enough to change our circumstances and to go deeper into the recesses of our hearts, and his name is Jesus. See, the entire Old Testament is pointing to a greater reality. And the fact of the matter is, success in this world might make your life easier. It might, make it, it might make all the things easy for you, but it will never satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart, and that is that we need God to change our souls. The powers of this world might elevate you, but they can't save your soul. Jesus can, though. He can because he did. Jesus stepped into he turned, uh, stepped off of his throne in heaven into this world, put on flesh into humanity so that he could make a home with you, so that you could be changed from the inside out. Like Paul would say in Second Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if anyone is in Christ, behold, the old has passed away and the new has come. Again, this is present tense. God came to make his home with you right now. If you would understand the, the story of redemptive history in the Bible, that the whole thing is about God coming to live with you and to give you joy and to make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right now. Listen, God is so committed to you. He's so committed to you that he, he didn't wait for you to clean up your mess to give you his life. He came to fill in the gaps now. Let me just ask you, are you living for the right kingdom? Because the transition of the passage will tell you that there really are two options. You can live for your kingdom, and eventually the ripple effects of that might just destroy generations to come, like it did with King Nebuchadnezzar. Or you can live for God's kingdom. And that might not be easy, but at the end of the day, what you get is you get God. What you have to realize is that God is working in the background. Can can I tell you a story? You know, many of you know that I I get a... um, bonus at the end of the year on my Tim Keller quote quotas. Um, so, so I was reading Tim Keller's biography. you remember last week I told you the story about Chuck Colson? And Chuck was um, President Richard Nixon's right-hand man, who was like the, the cutting block guy. And uh, he came to faith in Jesus. And because he came to faith in Jesus he decided that he could no longer do what he was doing, and he incriminated himself, which took a position to where uh, Richard Nixon was taken off of his throne, if you will, and no longer the president. Well, at that same time, uh, a young Tim Keller was in seminary at Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and, and, and the dean of the seminary was a guy named William Kerr. Well, William Kerr was trying to get a professor into Gordon Conwell that would ultimately shape the trajectory of Tim Keller's life. He would would change his theology in such a way that Tim Keller ended up planting Redeemer Presbyterian Church because of that guy. Well, that guy's visa was not coming through. No matter what was happening, he couldn't get his visa. Well, he did what all of us do when we're left with nothing else to do. He started praying. As he started praying, a guy named Mike Ford walked into his office. Do you know who Mike Ford was? Mike Ford was the son of Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was the guy who took over as president for Richard Nixon. He was the president of the United States' son. And he asked him, Professor Kerr, what are you praying for? He's like, honestly, I'm praying for a visa to come through because I can't get this visa. Well, guess what? Mike Ford goes back to his dad. Gerald Ford tells him, The guy's visa gets approved. He comes to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, changes the trajectory of Tim Keller's life, and that's why Tim Keller planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church, because a guy named Chuck Colson came to faith after reading a C.S. Lewis book. Because he came to faith, he incriminated himself, Richard Nixon goes to jail, because Richard Nixon goes to jail, Mike Ford goes to Gordon-Conwell because his dad is now the president. Because he goes to Gordon-Conwell, he walks in to William Kerr's office while he's praying, and he changes the trajectory of this guy's life who has ultimately changed the trajectory of my life. Tim Keller will tell you that Watergate happened because somebody accidentally left a door open in the Watergate building in Washington, D.C. And because somebody accidentally left that door open, it changed his life. Y'all, that's not what happened. Somebody didn't accidentally leave a door open. God was working in the background. God was changing history through a series of unfortunate events that ultimately landed a guy in a place, to be in a place that was in a place that changed a guy's life who has now influenced thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Don't tell me that God's not at work. You might not see it, But God is in the business, changing lives, and he has been for all of eternity. He takes what Satan means for evil, and he does it for good. Your situation, and trust me, I'm speaking to you as your pastor who probably knows a lot of your situations, they seem impossible, but they're not too much for God. What if, what if you and I actually realized that he's got the whole thing rigged? And you might not know it, but do you trust him? That what if it's in the silence of those things that you don't see, God, that God is actually changing who you are? You know what I want you to know? You are his poema. Here's poetry. It's like this rhythmic music that God has been doing since the beginning of time, knowing that you would be here, And he knows what the next couple hundred years are going to be like. And you sit right in the middle of it. And the question you have to ask yourself is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Because at the end of the day, that's really the ultimate question, isn't it? Do you trust that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing? That the entire thing, throughout all of redemptive history, might just be that today is the day that he changes the trajectory of your life. Let me pray for you. Maybe, just maybe, actually, why don't you stand? Maybe you put out your hands like we began our worship gatherings. And let me pray over you like this. For some of you, that wall that seems impenetrable, you need to let God float down the river to your heart. And you need to lay those things down and allow God to fill you up. You need to let Him do His work because He is the artist to fill the cracks of your life, to to make you whole again. Father, I don't know what we're carrying, but I do know that You say, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and You'll give us rest. God, we hold out our empty hands. And we ask them to be filled with you. If there's anything in us that's still filled with us, would you empty it? And I know that's a challenging prayer, Lord, because the emptying process doesn't always feel good. But I trust you. We trust you. Would you make broken things whole again, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.